Welcome to the Piano Whisperer Podcast. It's really easy to start going down that road, too, of who's more successful, who's getting more attention, and it just always feels terrible. You know, even if you're subjectively doing better than somebody, going in that headspace is just not satisfying. And it's a marathon. I've been doing this long enough to see people kind of come and go and burn out and also succeed and build up. And I've learned over the years that it's just, there's room for anybody that's good and anybody that is able to have a career deserves it because it's not easy. Hello everybody. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Piano Whisperer. My name is Ben Klinger and I am your host. I am thrilled to have with me today pianist, songwriter, singer, performer extraordinaire, Tony Dessert. Tony Dessert performs with infectious joy, rival playfulness, and robust musicality. Named a rising star male vocalist in Downbeat magazine, Dessert has lived up to his distinction by winning critical and popular acclaim for his concert performances throughout North America and abroad. From jazz clubs to Carnegie Hall to Las Vegas, headlining with Don Rickles and major symphony orchestras, Dessert has brought his fresh take on old-school class around the globe. Dessert has four top ten Billboard jazz albums under his belt and has been featured on the CBS Early Show, NPR, A Prairie Home Companion, The Today Show, and his music has been posted by social media celebrity juggernaut George Takei. Dessert has also collaborated with YouTube icons Postmodern Jukebox. Dessert's most recent release, Lush Life, debuted at number three on the Billboard Traditional Jazz Chart. Notwithstanding his critical acclaimed turns as a singer-pianist, Dessert is also an accomplished award-winning composer. He not only won first place in the USA Songwriting Contest, but has written the theme song for the motion picture My Date with Drew, several broadcast commercials, and has composed the full soundtracks for the Hallmark Channel's Love Always, Santa, Lifetime's Nanny Nightmare, and Lifetime's new A Welcome Home Christmas. His sound is romantic, swinging, and sensual. But what sets Desaire apart is his ability to write original material that sounds fresh and contemporary, yet pays homage to the great American songbook. His compositions include a wide range of romantic, funny, and soulful sounds that can be found on his top-selling records. Desaire's forthcoming appearances include the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, the New York Pops, Kansas City Symphony, and the Columbus Jazz Orchestra. Dessert releases new recordings, videos of standards, and new originals regularly on his YouTube channel, iTunes, and Spotify. Follow Tony on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube to stay connected. Tony. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it's really a pleasure to have you. It's great to be here, Ben. Thanks for that wonderful long intro. I all of a sudden feel <laughs> like I accomplished something. <laughs> it's so funny. So many people say that <laughs> you have accomplished an awful lot, let me tell you. <laughs> so I want to start with a 2007 NPR interview. In 2007, you interviewed with Scott Simon, and you were called the direct musical descendant of Frank Sinatra. But after learning about you, I discovered you have so many influences. In your Syncopated Times interview, you said, I like anybody who writes a good melody. That includes an awful lot of people. So tell us about your musical life growing up. Who influenced you early on? Who were you listening to? Who inspired you? And what were some key moments along the way? Well, I grew up 
in a small town in upstate New York. And of course, before kids today have access to all the recorded music and history on their iPads, I mostly just heard what my parents listened to, which were vinyl albums and the radio that they played. And my dad would come home from work every day, pretty much, and play guitar and sing. And he loved the Beatles and James Taylor, and mm. Neil Diamond, Kenny Rogers. So that's what I was raised on early on. Mm -hmm. And I always, though, had this fascination with seeing people play piano, whether it be on TV or at the local mall, wherever it is. And I didn't have a piano in the house. And the first instrument I could play in school in fourth grade was the violin. So I got violin lessons. And then a couple of years after that, I was just fixated on the piano still. So my parents got one of those little Casio keyboards. Oh, wow. Do you remember those with the sure. bossa nova button on it? And, the <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was obsessed. And then they got me a bigger keyboard, a Kurzweil K1000. Mm -hmm. And I got piano lessons. So that's kind of how the journey into what I do now began because I was obsessed with ragtime first. So Scott Joplin's The Entertainer was the first thing I uh, worked on, much to the frustration of my small-town piano teacher who wanted me to be practicing the uh, lesson books. I never practiced that stuff. I was just determined to get right into playing The Entertainer. So The Entertainer led to discovering George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which just totally captivated my imagination and took over my life for the second year. <laughs> um, and I hacked my way through that when I was... 11 or 12 years old, wow. but that's what taught me how to play piano. And I feel like that's what gave me my technique and my ability to have independence between my left and right hands. And then that opened the door to Gershwin's standards that he wrote with his brother Ira. Mm -hmm. And around that time, Harry Connick Jr. was becoming popular, which was like a, a young example of this music that I was just discovering. So I got into him and then I got into Frank Sinatra. So by the time I was in high school, I was collecting Frank Sinatra CDs big fan of Harry Connick and starting to play and sing myself. And then by the time I was a senior in high school, I started performing and I loved the way it felt and I loved the way people reacted. And I started playing locally in upstate New York and gained a following that was amazing for me at the time. And then I went off to college, but I still just kept on working on it. So that's kind of the path that got me started. Yeah. So Rhapsody in Blue is not exactly your traditional starting <laughs> piece. No, well, I mean, it was actually my second. I know. Yeah, there was just something about it. When I first heard it, I thought there were two pianos yeah. playing at once. And I just had to know how it worked. Kudos to your piano teacher for allowing you to do that, though, right? Yeah, she did. Diane Martin was her name. And uh, she let me do it. And she worked with me on it every week. And sometimes I'd only be able to play another measure or two. Of course. I was just stubborn and, until I got it. And then about four years ago, I started playing Rhapsody in Blue with orchestras. What a trip. That's always the version that I wanted to play, the orchestra version, not the piano solo version. Yeah, that's so cool. I've gotten to do that. I mean, it's terrifying every time I do it, <laughs> but it's such a thrill to stick the landing at the end and do that final melody. And have an audience jump to their feet. I mean, it's just thrilling. You know, I was talking to a piano teacher recently, we're debating, you know, what's the goal of piano lessons? And we decided the goal of piano lessons is to create lifelong piano players. That's the goal, right? That's great. But if you're going to like project a method onto somebody, you would not have had the experience you had. And so, like I said, kudos to your piano teacher, because her encouraging you or even allowing you just to do what you wanted to do really enabled this inspiration to take shape in your life. I think that's so awesome. Yeah, I do too. And looking back, she could have been 
no, I'm not going to work on that with you. That's crazy. You don't even know all your scales yet. Yeah. Because I seriously just did not do any of that. There are times that I wish that I had those fundamentals over the years, and I've kind of gone back to work on them. Sure. I learned scales by the way of improvising, but I never really practiced those exercises. I just always played a lot. Yeah. And then I had a lot of time playing in front of audiences and improvising. But yeah, I agree with what you say about making sure, especially if it's a kid, making sure they love it. Yeah, that's so important. So I'm going to flashback a little bit to Sinatra and Connick and so forth. Back in that 2007 NPR interview, you mentioned that when you were 14, you were introduced to Sinatra's music. And when you heard him, you felt like you had discovered, quote, your music, unquote. Can you tell us what made you feel that way? It's very common that you want to separate a bit from your parents' music. Mm -hmm. And at that time in my life, that was around the time that grunge music was coming out that my peers were listening to. And I wasn't relating to that. Plus, I was so into the piano and getting into jazz. So I think when I finally heard Frank Sinatra at his prime, because before that, I'd only really heard New York, New York and things like My Way, because, you know, he was still alive then and still out performing. And mm-hmm. that's when I'd see him on television or whatever. But when I heard him from like the 1950s, you know, the capital, you know, fairy yeah. tales can come true. Just the quality of what he was doing then and the arrangements it was just magic to me yeah and it didn't sound old or ironic that i was listening to this it just sounded like music that i was meant to love that's so cool yeah that was a very magical time period for him and even the great jazz artists acknowledge that about him but that's neat to hear how that affected you now you didn't go to college for music though you started with pre-law And then I read in your Symphoria interview that while you were at school, you attended a Billy Joel concert, dropped your law courses the next Monday and became a business major. So first, why didn't you go to school for music? And what was it about that concert that caused an immediate change of direction for you? Well, a couple of things there. One is when I was choosing colleges and majors, which happens between your end of your junior year and senior year. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even started performing professionally or gigging yet. And I didn't think really that I would. I just knew that I loved music, but I didn't think it would be a career. And actually, I I went to school pre-med. Oh, it's pre-med, not pre-law. Not pre-law. Oh, okay. But, you know, slight difference. But um, because what I did was not classical, it wasn't like full-on jazz, Mm -hmm. I just felt like, all right, I'll start school and keep doing these classes because I still wasn't sure that... I wanted to do music, you know, I wanted to have options. That makes sense. So it was my sophomore year that I saw Billy Joel and it, and it wasn't really a concert. It was when he was doing a speaking tour and it was just him, a piano and a few glasses of Jack Daniels that he had up there. Wow. And he would just talk and take questions. Somebody asked, how can you be telling us going to the music business when you're like a one in a million case? Yeah. You know, so successful, but most people aren't. And he said, well, to have a music career, he said, you don't have to be Billy Joel. You don't have to be me. You just have to play music and pay your bills. Yeah. And nobody had ever put it that way to me. Yeah. And I thought that seemed achievable. Yeah. So I was already mostly through my sophomore year. So I only had two more years yet to go in college. And I didn't want to switch to music because that would mean I'd have to stay longer. And I felt like I needed to get to New York as soon as I could to get on with it if I was going to do music. So I got out of the pre-med and switched to business because I just felt that it would allow me to spend more time practicing and focusing on music classes that I could take and still graduate on time and just be overall easier. Makes sense. So that's what I did. And I took during that time, big band arranging, theory, 
sight singing where I went. Ithaca College had a great music school. That's a great school for sure. Yeah. And they allowed me in once they auditioned and got the piano chair and the, the main jazz band. I was singing with the band. Nice. That must have been exciting for you at that time, right? Oh, it was. Yeah. Oh, man. It also made me realize among all those other kids majoring in music, I still had this unique thing. You know, I didn't know if I'd go to college and there would be 10 other guys just in Ithaca that could do what I could do. That's true. That's so interesting. And there wasn't. And I was able to play piano and sing with the big band there. And I got a following on campus. So by the time I graduated college, I had this following of college kids. And it just catapulted me and gave me the confidence to move to New York, where again, I thought I would move to New York and find that I was one of 10 or 20 guys doing the same thing. And I just started fresh again in New York and started the journey. That's so cool. The thing that rings true to me about your whole journey is that you always had your eyes on your love of it because you weren't even aware there weren't other people doing it. You were just doing it because you loved it. There's a common theme through all my podcast episodes where the love of the art and the love of the music is what propels people to do it and to share it. And they hold on to that throughout their journey. And they create such a wonderful tapestry of experiences that doesn't get contaminated from keeping your eyes on everybody else around you and thinking about competition and all those kinds of things that can really distort a person's vision of what they want to accomplish. So that's really neat. Yeah, thank you. Well, the thing is, too, it's really easy to start going down that road, too, of who's more successful, who's getting more attention. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And it just always feels terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, for sure. I understand. Yeah. You know, even if you're subjectively doing better than somebody, going in that headspace is just not satisfying. And, you know, it's it's a marathon. Yeah, that's right. I've been doing this long enough to see people kind of come and go and burn out and also succeed and build up. And I've learned over the years that it's just there's room for anybody that's good and anybody that is able to have a career deserves it because it's not easy. Yeah, it's a marathon. I think I'm going to cling to that a little bit. That's a really great thought. So now getting back to your training, I also read in the Symphoria interview that you never really formally studied jazz piano, or in your words, I think you said properly. So how did you learn? Well, because I never had this grand plan to go into music as I was growing up, you know, there wasn't the seriousness about it to study with teachers. Frankly, there wasn't a lot of access to jazz teachers where I grew up anyway. Mm -hmm. So if I grew up today, I would have learned off YouTube, like so many people I think are doing. Right. But yeah. I learned from sheer force of will to some extent. I had a double speed tape deck. Oh yeah, I remember those. And like I remember I recorded Harry Connick's solo piano version of Lazy River, which is like this kind of stride piano thing. And I, I recorded it at double speed, then I slowed it down and I wrote out every note. Mm -hmm. Then I learned it. Yep. And you know, that's a great way to learn. Yep. You're transcribing other people and then learning what they were doing. Yeah. And then I always had this, I think every musician has this to some extent or another. If I just listen to something a lot and basically have it so memorized that I can play it back in my head, it would just seep into my playing. That's really interesting. Not everybody has the ears to do that, though. And you must have had some kind of harmonic understanding also, right? So that you could attach what was going on improvisationally to what was going on harmonically, right? Yeah, I learned that along the way. I didn't learn it all in kind of all in one place. And, you know, and it took me a long time. But college was very useful for that because playing piano in that big band, we played a lot of complex like Thad Jones charts and, mm -hmm. you know, where the piano parts have every single chord in the whole arrangement. And, 
you know, I just at that time really started to get those under my hands more seeing a, a 13 sharp 11 flat nine, <laughs> yeah. and like, you know, all those and being able to have those ready to go. Yep. And then now, I mean, in recent years, I've arranged a lot more. I started doing my own arrangements for uh, orchestra. And I think I know more harmony than I need to for what I do now. It doesn't hurt, though. It's really helpful to understand so many things. Oh, yeah. Well, and there's there's a level of harmony that I can't go to, the, the kind of Jacob Collier, that level. Oh, yeah. That's not available to me. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I get by. Yeah, for sure you do. Absolutely. So now tell me about singing. Uh, did you study voice formerly? I read somewhere that you were shy growing up. So was it hard to sing in front of people initially? I know that after you found you were getting positive feedback, that made it easier. But tell me about that journey a little bit. Oh, yeah. I didn't sing for anybody for the first couple of years I started singing and still don't savor being the center of attention. So it's not something that I crave. But I always loved the kind of magic of singing and what it can do to share that with somebody. So I do appreciate that angle of it. Yeah. And as far as training, no, that's another thing that I really just learned by imitating the recordings that I heard and kind of a mishmash of all my influences. I, I love, you know, as far as vocalists go, Frank Sinatra, of course, but also Stevie Wonder, Billy Joel, oh, yeah. Elton John, people that just can really sing great. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with a lot of great singers. I had a lot of training. I had the privilege of doing symphony shows with Broadway stars that are very well-trained and do half-hour warm-ups and had conversations with them about what they do and how they take care of their voice. So in that way, I've had kind of informal voice lessons. Sort of coaching. Yeah. I think part of what makes my approach different is that it is very intuitive and doesn't come from this kind of trained muscle memory type of approach, which I think is very common among most pop singers. Well, yes, but I, I think you grossly underestimate your talent <laughs> because, um, you know, I'm in the music business. I meet people all the time. I hear music every single day live. And your pitch, for example, is so spot on. And your ability to hear and to match your voice with your piano is a talent that can't really be taught. You have an intuitive sense of all these things that you're probably taking for granted. I'm a piano player for sure, but I've always wanted to sing well and I've tried and tried and tried. And I admire these things that you're able to bring out of your voice that do take people years to get certain colors, a certain vowel manipulation that's just completely natural for you from what it sounds like. And uh, so there's a great deal of giftedness that goes on there too. Well, thanks for the kind words, but I will say that, for example, pitch, I'm always feeling like I'm not up to par enough on. I guess until recently, I'm more happy with it because I, I do these daily videos now. Yeah. I've done 243 of them. When I first started, I'd have to like do several takes because my whole thing is like, I got to do a whole take and like it. Yeah. You know, in the early days, I'd fix five or six notes here and there. I understand what you're saying, but you have to understand you are doing these complete takes perfectly. And a lot of people can't do that. Well, well, thanks. But the pitch in particular is something that I've thought, <laughs> like even as I'm singing, I can hear if I'm like just a few cents and it's like, why can't I sing this right on? It's like, it drives me crazy. Yeah. Well, I have to say that that's sort of refreshing to hear. I don't wish that struggle on anybody, but I have not observed that struggle in you. So for what it's worth, 
I appreciate your candor, though, about that. I'm very, very picky about my recordings. I just make sure I get it right. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those things that it's so fundamental to getting the message across. Oh, yeah, it is. That's true. Anyway, well, thank you. <laughs> well, no, I appreciate your candor in sharing that. That is refreshing. But, uh, you know, I do know that you've done an awful lot of live video that you've posted, and it's been fabulous. Anyway, so you have now accomplished a lot, and you've played some of the finest venues in the U.S. You've had tremendous success with your recordings. You've won all kinds of awards. You've played with major symphonies. You're now film scoring, and you've had a lot of experiences along the way. I was curious how you happened to headline with comedian Don Rickles in Vegas, and then also partner on some level with comedian Joe Piscopo. Can you share a little bit about how those collaborations came to be? Yeah, well, let's start with Joe Piscopo because that's early on in my career. I was playing Jilly's Piano Bar, which was kind of the reincarnation of the famous Jilly's that Frank Sinatra used to frequent because his best friend was Jilly Rizzo. Mm. So Jilly's son, Willie, and a few other people opened this new Jilly's back in like 2001 or 2000, yeah, around then. And Joe Piscopo, always a big Frank Sinatra fan, famous for his Frank Sinatra Saturday Night Live impression back in the 80s started to come in there. He came in on opening night and I was the, the piano player singer and he loved what I was doing. And after a few times, he asked me if I would play piano for his show and kind of lead the band, which I started doing wow. and went on the road with him off and on for years and would rehearse and lead his band and play piano. And we became great friends. I mean, we still talk every few months or so and uh, we've known each other, gosh, it's like 20 years now. Wow, neat. But that was a really big thing early in my career. Well, he was my first celebrity supporter, you could say. Mm -hmm. He would call me like, hey, Tony, I'm going to uh, Ahmed Erdogan's house for a party. Do you want to come with me? And so I'd, I'd go to Ahmed Erdogan's house, you know, the guy that signed Ray Charles and, and all that. And I, I would meet all these people. And wow. so he tried to help me. Just the experiences that I had playing these clubs and concert halls with him opened the door to what I would be doing someday on my own. Yeah. And then fast forward to about 10 years later, and Frank Sinatra's former road manager, Tony O, knew about me and actually spoke to John Pizzarelli, who's a friend of mine, yeah. saying that he might want me to open for Don. Well, that happened, and then I never heard anything. But then my manager at the time knew Don's William Morris agent, and he set up a showcase in LA, and I played for him. And then Tony O convinced him to give it a shot. So I had this trial as Don's opening act, and I did 35 minutes with Don's big band. Don loved me, and Don said you know, he wanted me to do it whenever I could. So after that, I think I opened for him another, I don't know, eight to 10 times hmm. over the next few years, and then it was amazing. And it was amazing to become friends with him. He really was friendly to me and my whole family, and I would talk to him in his room before the show, and um, you know, he really was kind. He sent me a gift when my son was born. I went to his funeral. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a great experience to, to know him and call him a friend. You know, it was wonderful. Yeah. Your music speaks of an era that was probably very familiar to him also. There must have been some con consolation there for him as well, just working with you. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, I have such veneration for the way those singers phrased and the, how seriously they took the music. Yeah. And I think when people impersonate Sinatra, for example, they might nail certain things kind of that are caricatures of Frank Sinatra, but don't really get to the center mm -hmm. of the art form. And that's something that I was always interested in. I think Don realized that I was about the art form, not about a tribute act. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. 
So now I want to talk about your quarantine diaries, which can be found on your YouTube channel. COVID turned the world upside down for everyone, as everyone knows, but especially for performing artists. You seem to feel the gravity of the COVID situation deeply, but also a strong desire to add some positivity to it. So you created the Quarantine Diaries as a way to give back. You mentioned in the Syncopated Times interview that your idea for Quarantine Diaries arose out of a night in the dumps, quote unquote. You also mentioned how the diaries now keep you emotionally upright also. Would you feel comfortable talking about your emotional journey through this time, the night in the dumps, and the connection with your fans that you've created through the diaries? Yeah, sure. Well, back in March 2020, I just started a month-long tour of the Midwest. And as I was leaving for it, things were starting to shut down. And I did one night in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and then the tour got canceled. And all of a sudden, I was home, like everybody else, and no idea when I'd play again and all that. And so I think I got home on a Saturday. And then Sunday, I just kind of didn't know what to do and felt kind of at sea. And then Monday, when I got up, I was like, I can't just do what I did yesterday. You know, I got to like do something that makes me, that gives me some sense of purpose or something today. So the first thing I did after I got up and took a shower, I got dressed and went down and I recorded a song and I recorded a video of it and I shared it on Facebook. And then people throughout the day commented on it and they really liked it. At that point, I didn't plan to do it all the time. That's I just did it that day. Mm-hmm. And then the day after that, I felt like, let me do it again. And then within a few days, I just decided this was going to be my new routine. So I did 100 videos in a row, 100 days. And then I still do them now, two or three a week. Yeah. And I've just put out number 243 yesterday. That's amazing. And it's one of the best things that I've ever done. One, because it has deepened the connection with the people that do follow my music. And that's been helpful. And it helped me through the pandemic. I did live streams and they've been so supportive, both emotionally and financially. Mm. But I think there's just so many things about it that were beneficial. One, just to give me a sense of routine, but also I made sure that my skills didn't atrophy. So every day I was singing and playing, recording myself, mixing audio, editing video, just kept all those skills sharp. Like we were talking about before, I always wanted to be a one-take singer. And I wasn't at the beginning of the pandemic as far as I was concerned. Mm. And now I am. Before, I would sometimes sit down there and do 10, 11 takes before I felt like I got one. Mm -hmm. Now I go down, I pick a song that maybe I don't even know all that well, and I've got it in two or three takes. And I go back and listen to it, and I don't want to change a thing. So it's given me that as a gift. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, you know, Sinatra recorded 1,500 songs in his career. (laughs) Wow, that's perspective. Yeah, the business is so different now. But Mm -hmm. I just at this point figure this is a nice tradition that I like. It keeps my skills sharp. I enjoy it. So why not just keep going and see how many I can do? That's so cool. Well, thank you for your willingness to share all that. Now I want to share your music with our listeners. I often share one or two pieces with our listeners, but this time I've chosen segments of three different songs because I feel each song genuinely represents a distinctively different side of you. The first song I'm going to highlight is your most recent single from earlier this year titled I'm Gonna Live Till I Die, which I feel captures the essence of Sinatra in you that people so often talk about when they mention you. This also is a video which is getting a lot of views on your YouTube channel. The second song I want to play is from your most recent full album, Song Diaries Volume 1, which was released last year. This, in my opinion, is a great album, which journeys through the singer-songwriter side of you. 
I chose your version of You've Got a Friend because I just love your treatment of that song. And lastly, I chose to feature Chemistry from your 2013 album simply called Piano. This is another uber creative record, in my opinion, in which every sound that accompanied your vocals was created on an acoustic piano. So folks, as you listen to this cut, those aren't different instruments that you are hearing. Everything you hear was created on the piano itself. And Tony, do you want to add anything to this before we listen? Um, No, I think that's a great intro. And um, thank you. Sure. And before we do listen, I want to thank our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes all of these episodes possible. Let's listen now to Tony Desaire. The blues, I'll lay low. I'll make them stay low. They'll never trail over my head. I'll be a devil till I'm an angel. But until then... I'm gonna live till I die I'm gonna laugh instead of cry I'm gonna take the town and turn it upside down I'm gonna live, live, live until I die They're gonna say, what a guy I'm gonna play for the sky Ain't gonna miss a thing, I'm gonna have my fling I'm gonna live, live, live until I die the blues, I'll lay low, I'll make them stay low They'll never trail over my head I'll be a devil till I'm an angel But until then, hallelujah Gonna dance, gonna fly I'll take a chance, riding high Before my number's up, I'm gonna fill my cup I'm gonna live, 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 live Until I die If the sky 
should turn dark and full of clouds in the old north wind should begin to blow just keep your head together and call my name out loud and soon I'll be knocking outside your door you just call out my name and you know wherever I am I'll come running yeah running to see you again winter spring summer or fall all you gotta do is call and I'll be there yes I will say ain't it good to know that you got a friend if people can be so cruel they'll hurt you and desert you they'll take your soul if you let them know but don't you time story there is hardly anything on which we agree but when we get together and you shake us around a scientific quantity of magic is found causing an explosion that's bound to get loud that's called chemistry you're like the mona lisa when I try to please you, there is hardly any place we both like to go. But when we get together and no one's around, a scientific quantity of magic is found, causing an explosion that's bound to get loud. That's called chemistry. It's a strange romantic story Making love in a laboratory But when I hold you And you hold me too The result's a chemical cacciatore Maybe I will love you Maybe I'll hate you Either way, at least I pray One constant is true is found causing an explosion that's bound to get loud that's called chemistry
results a trustable combustible event maybe i will love you maybe i'll hate you either way at least i pray one constant is true that when we get together and you shake us around a scientific quantity of magic is found causing an explosion that's bound to get loud that's chemistry this feeling of elation is all in the equation hurry up and do it come on there's nothing to it if you want to turn her I love your work, Tony. I really appreciate the sincerity of your artistry. Your authenticity really does shine through. So tell us about Tony Desaire today and going forward. What's on your mind currently? What's most important to you right now? And what can we anticipate going forward? Well, as far as today, I think just adjusting to whatever the new normal is going to be. And I have to say that it's been tougher for me processing what's happened the last year than it was when it initially happened. You know, I think I just kind of hit the ground running at the beginning of the pandemic and started making the videos. And now that it's getting time to get back on the road, on one hand, I'm excited to. And on the other hand, I am kind of reevaluating what I want to do next. And I'm not sure what I want to do next. <laughs> so I'm a little bit in transition, I think, as far as what I think my next big pursuit will be. <laughs> There's been so many skill sets that have kept me going through my entire career and I need to find new ones to pursue because I just feel like video editing and audio engineering and playing and singing. Not that I'm the best at those that's ever been, but I'm about the best at them as I can be. So film scoring, I'd like to do more of that. I've scored four films. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. And continue to arrange for orchestra. I started arranging my own symphonic pieces that I sing and you know want to see how much further I could take that. You know, and just kind of doing my best to take care of my mental health and be conscious of the fact that a lot of people are struggling now. It's such a weird time yeah. and hope that music can be a healing factor for them and for me. Sure. I really appreciate your candor with that. And I'm excited to see what comes next because I anticipate good things. This probably seems like it's all gratuitous. It's really not. I just look at the way that your journey has gone so far and I'm excited because I feel like you're approaching all this stuff as honestly as you can. And I just think generally good things come out of those situations. It doesn't mean that there's not a downside along the way, but I think what really resonates with people and fans is the authenticity and that sense that people are engaging with someone real. And I think that you've had a history of creating that and I look forward to what comes next. Thank you. Absolutely. Is there anything that you'd like to discuss that I haven't mentioned? Well, no, other than to thank you for having me on and for being extraordinarily well-prepared and knowing so much about my career and my path. It's really allowed us to have a nice, deep conversation about music, and I appreciate it. Oh, my privilege. I have definitely enjoyed researching and spending time in this plethora of different music styles and 
so forth that you've recorded. It's been a real privilege on my end. So thank you very much for being willing to chat with me. And how can people find out more about you? How can we point people to you? Well, um, easy to find. Even just Googling my name will be a good first step. Uh, my last name is D-E-S-A-R-E. But you can find me most on my Facebook music page is kind of where most of my audience is for my daily videos. If you want to go back and watch all 243, the best place to go for that is YouTube. And then my website, TonyDeSera.com, it's got my schedule on it. It's got my store where you can order autographed CDs and sheet music of my original songs. And um, yeah, that's about it. Speaking of original songs, I don't think I added that the piece chemistry that we played is an original song. You wrote that song. And so I, I want to put that out there because I failed to mention that before we listened. Well, many thanks again, Tony. I'm so grateful you were willing to join me today. As I mentioned, I totally enjoyed learning about you and steeping in your music, and I'm thrilled to share it with our listeners. I am excited to hear what's next for you. And I also want to thank everyone who is listening today. Without you, there would be no reason to do this. If you'd like to learn more about Piano Whisperer or if you would like to explore earlier episodes, please visit pianowhisperer.org. Or you can find us on all the major streaming platforms. So take care, everyone, and we will catch up with you again next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisperer and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.